0: As we come to our study of the Word of God, I want to tell you something right up front. The passage that we are going to study is one of the most difficult passages I have ever wrestled with in terms of interpretation. I have gone back and forth for years about this passage, so I'm going to do something that I don't ever remember doing with any other passage, and it is this. I am going to present evidence on both views... Both possible interpretations and draw applications from both interpretations, and let you wrestle with the information and decide where you land. Let me read the passage to you and then we'll consider it together. Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And please follow along as I read verses 4 through 25. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. We're not going to actually begin studying there, but to get the context, I'd like to begin reading there. It says, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, Many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying out of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, "Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me." So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they turned to Jerusalem, preached, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now some of you may be scratching your heads and wondering what I have found that is so difficult about this passage. So let me explain. The vast majority of the commentators say that Simon the sorcerer was not a saved man. He was not a genuine believer. In fact, they say that Luke's purpose in this chapter is to contrast true saving faith with false faith. Simon the sorcerer is the example of false faith. And then in verses 26 through 40, the Ethiopian eunuch is the example of true saving faith. That is the view of the overwhelming majority of the commentators. They say that Peter's rebuke proves that Simon wasn't a genuine believer. He wasn't a Christian. Because Peter says, you you are poisoned by bitterness, bound by iniquity, pray to God that he'll forgive you, etc. And that's the majority view. And they may be right. So I'm going to present that side, the evidence for that view. But I also believe there's another possibility. I also believe that there is a very real possibility that Simon actually became a child of God. But because he let his past hold on to him, he came dangerously close being judged by death, as were Ananias and Sapphira back in chapter 5, who had a similar problem that was evident in Simon's life, that is, a hypocritical desire for prestige. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? Sold a possession, pretended they gave all of it. Peter says, why have you done this? Why have you done this? And they were killed on the spot. So, I'm also going to present that side and show you that Peter's words could have been a warning to that effect instead of a warning that he was not truly regenerate. I personally don't believe that the interpretation is as clear cut as many people say. So, let's get started and you'll see what I mean. In verses 4 through 8, Luke described a great revival that took place in Samaria. Under the ministry of Philip, God was doing some miraculous things in people's lives, which brings us to verse 9, where Dr. Luke tells us, But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery or magic arts, in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. Now let's stop there for just a moment. The New King James Version, which is what I'm using to preach out of, begins this verse with the word, but, as if there is a strong contrast that is going to follow. The New American Standard Bible and the NIV are more accurate when they begin the verse with the word, now. Luke is not changing gears and making a strong contrast when he writes verse 9. He is simply continuing his record of what was happening in Samaria. He has been describing what happened in broad, general terms. And now he centers in on a specific event when he brings up Simon. Luke described him as a man who practiced sorcery or magic arts. First, let me say what this is not talking about here in the passage. This is not talking about a man who did magic tricks. This is not talking about a man who did illusions for fun. That's not the issue. This is describing someone who trafficked in occult practices. That's not to say that he didn't use deception some of the time, tricks, etc., or that everything he did was real. It could have been fake in the sense of, of, of trickery. But the point is, this isn't talking about fun illusions. It is talking about demonic magic. Let me pause at this point and offer a serious warning about messing around with things like seances, Ouija boards, astrology, divination, black and white magic, etc. Those practices are serious business because it's not just harmless fun. Demons take opportunity to get a handle in people's lives through those avenues. If you have ever engaged in anything questionable like that, then I would encourage you to confess it to the Lord as wrong as sin and ask him to break any handle in your life that you may have given to Satan even if inadvertently or unintentionally this is the kind of thing that Simon engaged in when he practiced magic he had the ability to exercise control over nature and or people by means of demonic power lensky rch lensky wrote these words quote This Simon belonged to a class of charlatans that were rather common at this period who practiced occult arts in order to impress the people and to gain a following. Much was plain sorcery, which was at times combined with a shrewd use of natural laws that were otherwise unknown. The range of their arts extended from conjuring of demons, dealing with the dead, influencing the gods to charms for healing, divination, stargazing, and the like, end quote. That was Simon. And Dr. Luke says he had a huge following. Verse 10, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. When I read that, I am reminded that people are so gullible, They will believe anything in the name of God or religion, especially if it is spectacular in some way, especially if it's a show of some kind. The people of Samaria flocked to give heed to Simon. By the way, this still goes on today in religion and Christianity. People, people in general basically want a show. Unfortunately, that's even true in the church. Many people just want to be entertained Or be titillated, or somehow excited about something. It's a tragedy, but it's nothing new. It was all the way back here. Verse 11 says, And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. This is why I said that at least some of Simon's power was real. Dr. Luke tells us these people had witnessed Simon's ability for a long time. This wasn't just a one-time show. Fly by night, come into town, do some tricks, and then leave. No, this was something that had gone on, and the people were able to observe it. And they said, he's got some real power. He had power. How did Simon do this? Simple answer, he did it in the power of Satan. The Bible is clear that Satan and demons can perform signs, miracles. Let me show you this in several passages. Go back to Matthew chapter 7 for just a moment. We'll do a quick survey of this topic in Scripture. Matthew 7, probably the most fearful words in Scripture. Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, And done many wonders in your name. And notice that in in his response, Jesus doesn't deny that this happened. He just says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These people performed miraculous signs. Jesus doesn't question that or deny it, but they end up in hell. That has to mean that the source of their miracles was demonic. For that reason, look at what Jesus said over in chapter 12 of Matthew. Just a few pages to the right. Verse 38. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Evil people seek signs because the purpose of a sign is so the message will be believed. But when the sign becomes the issue rather than the message, it reveals an evil and wicked heart. Look at chapter 24 of this same gospel. A few more pages to the right. Chapter 24, verse 24. Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise... And show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Jesus is talking about the time leading up to his second coming. And he says, false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders. Beloved, again a reminder, Satan and demons can do signs. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2. Turn to the right, past Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, then 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2, 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9, <clears throat> Paul says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all, here's the fascinating part, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. The amazing part about this verse is those three terms, except for the word lying, take that word out, but just power, signs, and wonders, and it may be different words in your translation. But those three terms are the exact three Greek terms used to refer to the miracles of Jesus and the apostles. Exact terms. Satan is a master counterfeiter. Doing the same thing Jesus did. The same thing the apostles did. Look at the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 13. Revelation, chapter 13, verse 11. John says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. Whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs. You know, in light of verses like this, I am amazed. I am still shocked at how many Christian people are deceived by supposed miracle workers today. This is all over the place in Scripture. This type of awareness. Look at chapter 16. Just a couple chapters to the right. Chapter 16, verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are spirits of demons performing signs. There it is again. Demons performing signs. And then look at chapter 19. Again, just a couple pages to the right. Chapter 19, verse 20. says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Now, the the amazing thing about these last three passages we looked at, they're all in the book of Revelation, which is futuristic. So think about this. Could it be that this present-day signs and wonders movement is actually setting the stage for the false prophet who is to come and deceive the world? Whenever God does something, mark it, Satan always counterfeits it. And he counterfeits miracles with his own miracles and signs. Now back to Acts chapter 8. God worked genuine signs through Philip to verify the message which was central, but to confuse the issue, Satan already had in place his own counterfeiter to confuse the issue. But God's spirit broke through, Dr. Luke tells us, because verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So they believed and were baptized, which is a very significant step because that baptism was a public declaration that they were different. They were taking a stand for Christ and against all of this stuff that had been a part of their lives previously. God used Philip's preaching in the lives of these people in Samaria, and the result was that many came to faith in the Lord Jesus— And publicly confessed their faith in Christ. Publicly took a stand for Christ by being baptized. But here's where the passage gets sticky. Look at verse 13. Dr. Luke tells us, Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. Now stop there for just a moment. Look at this. He believed, he was baptized, and he continued. If you read theologians who wrestle with the issue of genuine salvation, perseverance of the saints, they will often say, well, something like this. The mark of true faith is someone who believes, someone who confesses that or, you know, takes a public stand, in this case baptized, and someone who continues, not someone who just, you know, flash in the pan. He seems to be genuine, but then he just bails out. No, look, Philip had all three. Believed, was baptized, and continued. And was amazed. Simon, I mean Simon himself, believed when he was baptized. He continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Luke uses the exact same words to describe what happened with Simon as he did to describe what happened to those who became Christians in verse 12. And in fact, he even strengthens it because in verse 12, they believed and were baptized. And he adds, believed and baptized and continued. So the, va- the reason the vast majority of commentators believe that Simon wasn't saved, in light of this very compelling evidence that he was saved, the reason the vast majority say he wasn't is what, because of what Peter says to him later. And as I said, they may be right. Maybe Simon's faith wasn't genuine. It may sound strange to hear me say this, but if Simon's faith wasn't really genuine, then it's sort of a backdoor encouragement to me to know that Philip baptized someone who wasn't really a Christian. The reason I say that is because I've done that in the past. Not knowingly, but you know, after the fact, you realize later that someone who makes a profession of faith and is baptized and then they prove that they're not real. You, you know, you hate to do that, but you can't always be sure. I mean, all you can do is, is hear people's testimony, their faith in Christ, and, and if it's genuine and they, they seem sincere and it seems genuine, it seems like there's been a transformation in their life, you can't say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not going to baptize you. I'm going to wait five years to see how long you continue. You can't do that. So in the past, I've, I know now, sort of hindsight, there have been people I've baptized that didn't know Christ, and if Simon's faith wasn't genuine, Philip did the same thing. Only God knows the heart. Maybe Simon's faith wasn't gen- genuine. Maybe it was what James 2 refers to as demonic faith because it's only intellectual assent. But listen, you would never know that by Luke's words here in verses 12 and 13. Simon believed and was baptized, and he continued. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. It's interesting to note when you read this verse that at one time during Jesus' ministry, James and John, same John here, James and John had asked the Lord about calling down fire from heaven to consume some Samaritans. Remember that story? Lord, should we just burn them up? Just call down fire. Now, to think of this, John is being sent out to view firsthand God's work of salvation among the Samaritans. I can't help but wonder if he thought back to that time when he said, maybe we should just burn them up, Lord. Just consume them. And now here, as the Spirit of God's moving, he is the one sent out to see what God was doing. Verse 15 tells us, Who, when they had come down, prayed for them. That they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet He had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. What's going on here? The significance of this event lies in the fact that these were Samaritans. Don't forget that. Dr. Luke is very clear where this is taking place. These were Samaritans. Acts records the time of transition into the norm of the church age. And because of that, there are several unique events in the book that are unreproducible. This is a case in point. God didn't give the Holy Spirit to the believers in Samaria until the apostles were present to pray for them and lay hands on them. However, by contrast, in Acts 2 and Acts 10, the Holy Spirit was received without the laying on of hands. What's the point? Here's the point. It is arbitrary and wrong to try to make this event here in Acts 8 normative for Christians today. And that's what some people try to do with this. They say, hey, you know how you get the Holy Spirit? Have someone lay hands on you to receive the Holy Spirit. And they use this as the proof text, as the basis for that. It's important to keep in mind there is no pattern in the events or for the events of Acts 2, 8, 10 or 19. If you try to base normative doctrine on those passages, you'll end up hopelessly confused because there is no pattern. People sometimes, well-meaning Christians will some, I've heard this many times through the years, well-meaning Christians will say, we got to get back to the book of Acts. We got to go back to the book of Acts and, and do things the way they did them and live the way they live and experience what they experienced. And I always say, okay, experience which chapter? 2, 8, 10, 19? They're not the same. You can't say, go back to Acts. It's not the same in Acts. And by the time you get to the church epistles, it's an utter impossibility to be a Christian and not possess the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. In other words, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not even a Christian. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul told the carnal Corinthian Christians that every one of them was indwelt by the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he told them that every one of them had been baptized by the Holy Spirit of God into the body of Christ, and all, every one of them, had been made to drink one spirit. The picture there, drinking, partaking of one spirit. So it's an, an utter impossibility to be a Christian and not possess the Holy Spirit. Then why did this happen here in Acts 8? The simple answer is this. To keep the church unified so there wouldn't be a Jewish church down in Jerusalem and a Samaritan church in Samaria. God did not want there to be that division. God made sure that the Samaritan believers would be seen to be fully incorporated into the community of Jewish believers, Jerusalem believers. This is confirmed by the way Peter described the conversion of the Gentiles when in Acts 11 he explained that the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles and he uses this phrase, the same way the Spirit came on us in Acts 2. So this isn't a new Pentecost. That's what some Christians would call it. This is not a new Pentecost. This is an extension of the one Pentecost to the Samaritan people so the church would be one. God went to great lengths to make sure the church would be one. That's something very, very important to the Lord, for the church to be one. There's a little side note here. That's why I'm, I'm bothered by this idea that's so popular among churches to have one service for young people where everything is slanted that way then another service for older people with everything slanted that way. I believe that's a serious mistake. For one thing, that teaches people to be selfish, Just demand what you want and never to learn to appreciate the diversity in the body. But it's tempting to do that because the pressure is often great from the young and the old. But God wants the church to be unified. And to learn to work together. So on this occasion, he even amazingly held back the Holy Spirit from the Samaritan believers until the apostles were present so that the Samaritans would see themselves under the authority of the apostles. And one with the Jewish believers. The Samaritans didn't receive the Holy Spirit until the apostles laid hands on them and prayed for them. Please notice that only the apostles could do this. Not even Philip, who could do miraculous signs, was able to lay hands on the believers for them to receive the Holy Spirit. This ought to be a strong rebuke to those today who think they can lay hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit. For one thing, as I already mentioned, the Holy Spirit is given to us at conversion. But secondly, even when that wasn't the case, in these exceptions, as in the transitional time in Acts, only the apostles could lay hands on believers for them to receive the Spirit. So Dr. Luke tells us in verse 18 that when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Because Simon could see that the Holy Spirit was given, I mean, how can you see that? Because he could see, I personally believe, there was a physical manifestation similar to what happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, which would further keep the church unified rather than, well, we had this experience, you didn't have it. No, they all had the same experience because it's all one body. And when Simon saw that, he wanted that ability to do what the apostles were able to do. He offered them money in verse 20, but Peter said to him, your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Now what is Peter saying here? This is where we have to be very careful and accurate. It is possible that Peter is saying that Simon was lost, condemned, unregenerate. It's also possible that Peter was warning Simon that what happened to Ananias and Sapphira might happen to him. God might strike him dead. Which of the two is Peter referring to in this verse? I'm not sure there's any way to be dogmatic. Maybe Simon was a true believer who was off base, who still, like Ananias and Sapphira, allowed pride to be so dominant in his heart. It's like, hey, I want that power. I want the prestige that would come from that. Just like Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be patted on the back for selling their property and giving the money, pretending they gave it all. And that pride and hypocrisy cost them their lives. So maybe he was a true believer or maybe he wasn't a Christian. By the way, this is one of the things that makes ministry so difficult. It's not what Satan does in the world that makes things difficult. Not usually. It's what he does in the church. He plants tares among the wheat. Do you remember the parable Jesus told? Back up to Matthew 13 for just a moment. A reminder of this parable that Jesus taught with this spiritual lesson or this principle. Matthew 13, verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to them, Do you want us to then go and... Gather them up, but he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barns. Amazing illustration Jesus gives there, because for a long time in the growing process, it is almost impossible to tell the difference between wheat and tares. The same thing is true in the spiritual realm. Sometimes there are unbelievers who look so genuine, look so real. For example, if you had been living back in Jesus' day, there's absolutely no way you would have known that Judas Iscariot wasn't a true believer. You would have never known that. The disciples never even suspected Judas wasn't a, uh, that Judas was an unbeliever. So we shouldn't be surprised when this happens today. I'm, there's no doubt in my mind, right here in our own church, there are undoubtedly wheat and tares, true and false. And eventually the Lord will sort it all out. We can't. Now back to Acts chapter 8. Peter continues his rebuke in verse 21. He says, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Now again, you need to be very careful. Don't just paint with a broad brush here. What is Peter saying? You have neither part nor portion in this matter. What matter? I believe this is a reference to the ability to lay, on, lay hands on others to receive the Holy Spirit. Whereas most take it as a reference to salvation. You have, neither, you have no part in this salvation. Well, it's possible that's what he was saying. But what had Simon just asked what he requested give me this power he offered them money and said give me this power and peter said you don't have any part in this matter in other words what simon was wanting to buy was not salvation he was wanting to he was wanting to buy the power to be able to lay hands on people so they would receive the spirit that's what i believe peter is referring to when he says you have no part in this matter he was referring to the authority to impart the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter told Simon he had no part nor portion in that matter because God had only granted that ability to the apostles. Another strong warning that is to those today who think they can transfer the Holy Spirit to others by laying on hands. Another little side note here. I would encourage you not to ever allow anyone to lay hands on you, to pray for you, if their purpose is to transfer something to you. Laying on of hands for symbolic reasons to demonstrate support is one thing. Laying on of hands to to symbolize commissioning is one thing. But laying on of hands to transfer something is dangerous business. You never know what you're going to get. I'll never forget years ago in a class I took as a student at Moody Bible Institute my professor, Dr. C. Fred Dickinson, played a taped interview that he did with a gal who was demonized. I heard the demon speak through this gal. It was an eerie uh, class, just sitting there listening to this demon speaking. And Dr. Dickinson, and, and not throwing a blanket over everything and, and saying all oh, this is right. I'm just, just telling the, the story for the sake of the illustration of the point. Dr. Dickinson asked the demon when he had entered this gal, and the demon said it was when she had some people lay hands on her to pray that she would receive the gift of tongues. That's what the demon said. She did receive something on that occasion, but it wasn't what she expected to receive. So don't, don't let people lay hands on you to pray for you if they're saying, I'll transfer something. I'll give you. you don't know what they have. You may not want what they have. Simon's heart wasn't right because he wanted power and prestige. Now, that may indicate that he wasn't a true believer, or it may be that he was a believer who needed to deal with this in his heart. We, we dare not assume that if you're a believer, you never struggle with pride. You never, desi- you never struggle with a desire for power or prestige. The sinful habits of the past have a way of holding on even after God saves us. Surely you know what I'm talking about. Some habits or character traits are hard to break. Verse 22, Peter says, Repent therefore of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Notice Peter didn't say, Pray to God so that your sins can be forgiven. He said, Pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Now you can probably tell by now that at this point in my study, I leaned toward the view that Simon was a genuine believer. But I'm not confident enough to exclude the possibility that he wasn't. Verse 23, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Whatever your view, Simon had some real issues. Peter may be saying here in this verse, Simon, you need to repent because you you aren't even saved. You aren't even a believer. Or he may be saying, Simon, you need to repent because you are letting sin reign in your life. Specifically, pride, desire for power, prestige. In Romans 6.12, Paul teaches that even as Christians, we can do that. That is, we can allow sin to reign. Romans 6.12 says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. The fact that Paul gives that command to Christians indicates that we, as Christians, can be guilty of doing that. So maybe that's what Peter was saying to Simon. By the way, this is one of the reasons why it is so important. It's just another principle here. Why it's so important that we not try to make Christian heroes out of movie stars or sports stars or other celebrities who make a profession of faith in Christ. First of all, we don't know if the profession of faith is genuine. But secondly, even if it is, we still have no business putting new Christians in the spotlight because they need to grow and learn to have consistent victory over sin. I'm sure the Christian community today would have grabbed Simon to make him a celebrity as soon as he made this profession of faith since he had been a celebrity before his profession. But just as it does today, that would have caused immense damage because Simon didn't have victory over his pride, his desire for power, whether he was a Christian or not. And so verse 24, Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Even this verse doesn't give us a definitive answer concerning the reality of Simon's faith. If he was genuine, then this indicates that what Peter said to him got through to him and he was repentant. Pray for me that that God doesn't strike me dead like Ananias and Sapphira. He doesn't take my life. If he wasn't genuine, then all Simon is doing is asking to escape the consequences of his sin, but wasn't interested in true repentance. Dr. Warren Wiersbe wrote this, quote, A sinner who wants the prayers of others but who will not pray himself is not going to enter God's kingdom. This episode only shows how close a person can come to salvation and not be converted. Simon heard the gospel, saw the miracles, gave a profession of faith in Christ, and was baptized, and yet he was never born again. He was one of Satan's clever counterfeits, and had Peter not exposed the wickedness of his heart, Simon would have been accepted as a member of the Samaritan congregation. And you know what? He may be right. That may be exactly what's going on here. Because Wiersbe's point is undebatable that a person can go through all the right motions on the outside but still not be a believer. That's certainly true, certainly a possibility. And that may be the category that Simon would fit in. But it is also possible that Simon was saved And that he is a fitting illustration of the fact that even as Christians there are tendencies and characteristics in our lives, things in our hearts, desire for prestige, pats on the back, power, prominence, things we need to deal with before the Lord. The easiest verse to interpret in this section is the closing one. Verse 25 says, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Since it was obvious God was moving among the Samaritans, as Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, they took the time to preach the word in many of the villages in Samaria. In one sense, don't read that too quickly. This is remarkable for these Jewish apostles, to, the apostles, to be doing this, because I'm sure at this point they still didn't completely understand that the Lord was doing a new thing by building his church, which would be made up of people from all tribes, kindred, nations, and people. But the word spread in Samaria, and this was a major turning point in the spread of the gospel beyond the boundaries of the Jewish people. So what can we take with us from this passage? Hopefully you've seen there's an application for every one of us in this room. Let me mention just a couple as we close. Number one, if you are not a Christian, then I warn you that you can go through all the right motions on the outside and still not be saved. God knows your heart. God knows if you're just pretending. God knows if you're not real, if you're not genuine. That's one application. For those of us who do know the Lord, we need to remember that there are tendencies and characteristics in our lives, in our hearts, that we need to deal with before the Lord. We dare not assume that just because we belong to Christ, that makes everything right in our hearts, that there are no issues that we have to address. It's a warped view of salvation. It's almost a perfectionism. God saves you, makes you perfect, no heart issues. Well, if that were the case, he'd just take us to heaven. What about sanctification? Issues in the heart that have to be dealt with. The Christian life is an ongoing struggle against the world, the devil, and even our own flesh. We dare never forget that and become blinded to what we need to deal with in our hearts before the Lord. We all have things. My sinful bents are different than yours, but we all have them. By God's grace, we dare not ignore them. Let's address them. Even now as I lead us in prayer. Let's close with prayer. Father, this is a perplexing passage. Perplexing because even if we had been alive then and, and been there, we can't see the heart. Just like Jesus reminded us in the parable of the wheat and tares some look so genuine and they're not genuine and others it's it's just difficult to tell sometimes and simon certainly is a perplexing character whether or not he really knew you eternity will show but thank you for the lessons the principles that we can draw from this passage regarding salvation regarding heart issues that we need to address in our own lives regarding ministry So much, so much for us in this this perplexing passage. May we mine it and really draw out of it its marvelous truths to sharpen us as your servants, to live for your honor and glory as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.